Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. Isaiah chapter 49, we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we give you thanks and we ask that you would now do what only you can do. Take your word. Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear. Make our hearts tender ground that we might receive from you today that for which we need. Lord, pour out your favor on us today as hearers. And make us glad hearers of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for our season of Advent, we continue to look at the servant songs of Isaiah this week, looking at the second found here in chapter 49. In the passages or the the verses, chapters leading up to chapter 49, Isaiah has been speaking. Again, his big theme is is return from Babylon, return from exile. And he's been speaking specifically of the human that God would use, this King Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, to bring back Israel to their homeland. 
But interspersed in these kind of messages of hope were these greater messages of hope, these servant songs. This is one of them. And right in the middle now, again, it breaks forth, just like what we saw in chapter 42. Another announcement breaks forth in chapter 49. Uh, It is speaking here of not of King Cyrus, but of the ultimate deliverer, the redeemer of God's people who would come, as we see, born of a woman. And the first song primarily focused on the character of the servant. Here we see more about his mission, that he has come to redeem his people according to the covenant promise. The Messiah is in these songs described as chosen, uh, some called, that, that kind of language, which in our minds can sometimes, I, maybe not for you, but for me, I, it's, it's hard to uh, think of the, the divinity of Christ when he's spoken of as chosen or called and how does all of this fit together. But as we saw last week, the, the Trinity works in harmony uh, in, in the work of redemption and in all of the, the work that they do. Uh, with each person of the triune God being equal in divinity, and equal in glory. And so the son we see accepts the role of servant, accepts the role of chosen one to carry this out, not because he is less than. Jesus is fully God, and he came born fully as a man. And while this mystery is great, we see it clearly in the scriptures. We saw this last week in uh, Philippians 2, Colossians 1. We might also go to the opening words of John's gospel and see there uh, with clarity that Jesus is God in the flesh. Another thing to keep in mind as we look through these servant songs, and in particular as we're looking in prophetic uh, scripture, is to remember uh, just how prophecy in scripture works, that the writers would often speak of an immediate context as well as a future context. And sometimes those things are in parallel or lay over each other, and it's, it's hard to see through. And so as I've spoken in the past when we've gone through Jeremiah and the book of Revelation, the airplane, uh, you know, idea of 30,000 feet, right? You're, you're up high. You're directly over a specific location. That's immediate context. But you're high enough that you can see other locations when you're up in an airplane. That's future context. That's what's happening here, and we'll see it played out in the book of Isaiah. The immediate context is, of course, the Babylonian exile. The future context we'll see is the coming of the Messiah and the consummation of all things. Uh, we'll see that John actually quotes this uh, chapter in Revelation to show its fulfillment at the end of time. So once again, we join in the anticipation of the first advent. We look back to look forward to prepare our hearts for the birth of the one that we celebrate this season. And with that in mind, look now at verse 1 where we read, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So the one speaking here, as before it was the father, here it's the son. The servant himself is begins speaking. And he's speaking an announcement, and he's speaking the announcement in the form of a testimony. He's speaking of himself And he calls out to people to hear his voice. He calls out to people from afar, O coastlands, you people from afar. And the beauty, of course, is that this is the in in the gospel announcement. It wasn't limited to the Jews. It was also for the Gentiles. The message would be for all nations. The exhortation or the call is seen not only here but throughout uh, redemptive history. It's the gospel call. Uh, As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. 
The servant then describes his calling as coming from birth. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And this brings to mind the initial promise that we saw last week in Genesis 3. That there in the garden, when God pronounced the curses on man and woman and serpent, he said that there would be a seed of the woman that would come. And he would crush the head of the serpent. It also brings to mind Isaiah's own words in chapter 7 when he spoke of the birth of the Messiah, when he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we remember the name Emmanuel means God with us, for Jesus would come born God in the flesh to redeem his people. In verse 2, the testimony continues. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And the idea here is that we see, uh, again, that the servant has been chosen in eternity past. That this came in the covenant of redemption before the world was made. God knew what he would do. And he would send his son as the servant to accomplish this task. To, to speak forth the gospel message of redemption as a sword to judge sin. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the picture of the power of the word of the sword of the Lord. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus instructs the angel who is over the church at Pergamum, to write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And if you were with us during our study of Revelation, you remember that Jesus is also portrayed as having that two-edged sword come from his mouth. See, the sword of the word of the Lord will bring forth the gospel of peace by judging sin once and for all. This is the announcement. It does this by declaring the work of the servant in his sacrifice on the cross as sufficient to conquer sin and death forever. For the servant is God in the flesh, sent to carry out the eternal covenant plan of redemption. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.19. So the servant here is portrayed in eternity past, hidden in the shadow of his hand until the designated day, until the time, the fullness of time, when he would come born for this very task. Verse 3 declares again the name as a title, the true Israel in whom Yahweh would be glorified. John spoke of this glorification, as I mentioned, in the opening words of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, of course, Jesus confirmed this throughout his earthly ministry, especially in his, pre- in his high priestly prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then we come to verse 4, and it seems like there's a conflict, a problem. Uh, he says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The servant foresees a difficult ministry, a ministry that we see on this side of the cross fleshed out in the Gospels. 
that he would face obstacles at every turn, that he would ultimately face the resistance of the people leading to his own death. Nonetheless, the servant's faith in the Father will guard him, will uphold him, and declare his rightful position in victory in the end. This is ultimately seen in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ when he, upon completion of our atonement, rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, declaring the victory over sin and death. And then the conclusion of the servant's testimony in verses 5 and 6 brings the attention back to Jacob, back to Israel. There's added on the end the the mention again of the Gentiles, but there's specifically something intended here for Israel. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. You see the role of the Messiah while we, Again, where we are as Gentiles, we typically talk about the, the, the glory that the message of the gospel is for the Gentiles, for the nations, because we're a part of that. But the message of the gospel is also for the tribes of Jacob. We see this language uh, in the New Testament that the, the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, that there is, in a sense, a priority uh, that we see that because Israel received the law, They were the recipients of the prophets. It was through Israel that the Messiah came, that God's desire is for them to see that Jesus is their Messiah. And so our evangelism should never discount Jewish people as though God has discarded them. He has not. We ought to desire both Jews and Gentiles receive in faith the Messiah who is Jesus. Yet the purpose of Israel, as we have seen from the very beginning, before Jacob was even given that name, was to fulfill the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Israel was to be that priestly role. In Egypt, God spoke to Moses during the seventh plague and said of his people, but before this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That was Israel's job. And following the exodus on Mount Sinai, God spoke to the people declaring his intent that they would be to him a kingdom of priests and a royal nation. They were to serve by by acting as a kingdom of priests, uh, uh, representing God to the nations. That was their role. They were always to be the light to the nations. They failed in that. But God never fails, and he sent the one who would be true Israel to accomplish that very task, to declare the light of the gospel not only to Israel but to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then following the testimony of the servant in the first six verses, we see beginning in verse 7, Now the Lord speaks, the Father speaks, his confirmation of the Son his servant, the anointed one. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the holy one of Israel who has chosen you. And so here we see Yahweh now speaking to the servant. 
And it's the Lord here who's called the Redeemer of Israel, which again, that Trinitarian thought process and how we get our brains around that is, is a little bit of a struggle. You think, I thought the Son was the Redeemer. Here the Father is taking on that title. But this isn't a problem because we see all three members of the Trinity uh, at work in uh, our redemption. The Father elects, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies our redemption. And so here the term is being used to draw our attention to the Father's election in eternity. He describes the servant as deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. This not only echoes what we saw in verse 4, that he would face a difficult ministry, so to speak, uh, but what would further be drawn out in the, the, the servant song in Isaiah, what speaks of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. The Messiah would not be worshipped and adored as he should be, but he would face obstacles at every turn. He would face the ultimate obstacle in his death. And while we often think of this in terms of the ministry of Jesus, I think it's also true as we see the people of God in the Old Testament. They despised and rejected their God by going after idols. It's really the story of God's people so often in history that we do not see him as the ruler of all and worship him as the one who is worthy of all of our praise. Yet the servant would experience this in a very focused, particular way in his death. The father continues speaking to the son in verse 8, pointing backward, as we saw in chapter 42, to the covenant of redemption in eternity past. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. This is all back in time, looking forward to what would happen. Jesus himself would be the covenant, the new covenant, which we get to come and receive the sign of at the table of the Lord this morning. Paul, in making his gospel appeal to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.2, quotes this verse from Isaiah. And then he adds, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so this becomes a gospel call, a call to believe, to receive what the servant has done by faith. The servant would come to not only declare, but to accomplish this gospel hope which then continues to unfold in verse 9 with language echoing the first servant song that prisoners will be released from the darkness. New sight is given to the blind. And then from the end of verse 9 on to verse 12, we see that far near, far off dynamic that I described with the you know, airplane imagery there, that, that there is something happening in the immediate context and something further off into the future. The immediate context is that the remnant, would be brought back from Babylon. They would be delivered out of exile, along highways, raised up to meet them. But the further future context of this prophecy points to the ultimate deliverance of God's people. In language that reminds us of Psalm 23 mixed with some of the new heavens, new earth kind of uh, language of, of the New Testament, the Lord now speaks of his reward that will come to his people through the servant that all who are in spiritual exile will be delivered and brought to safety. Language is pastoral, showing us again how the servant will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a, a smoldering wick, for he is gentle and meek. It's the good shepherd himself, the chosen servant who will lead us and feed us along the way. That is, the road of redemption is sure, and the servant will accomplish this for his people. Some of you are thinking, well, where is the smooth road? Because I'm not walking it right now. Well, let me tell you, the, the smoothness 
It's coming, but it's, it's not quite here yet. By God's grace, we do have smooth days, but nobody gets a smooth ride forever. We all face difficulties and obstacles in this life. So the hope that this is pointing toward is far off. The hope is coming, is yet to come. And, and, and Revelation makes this clear. John quotes these very verses in Revelation to make it clear that the ultimate fulfillment of what's being described here, the springs of water, the mountains made flat, all of the things that we long for, the smooth ride, the, 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 the wholeness of life is yet to come. But it is coming. And it will come in the end. And we who are Christ's will be brought safely home. Verse 12 then again echoes the breadth of the work of God redeeming all people, people from afar, from the coastlands, people of all places, among all ethnicities, including you and me who are here this morning in that category. And then comes the capstone of the entire song. This glorious celebration of God's redeeming servant found in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. You see, all of creation is here pictured, uh, personified, mountains, heavens, earth, as singing unto their maker and redeemer, because the Lord is not only redeeming a people for himself, he is also redeeming his creation as well. Yet it is in his people in which his glory rests. And so the ultimate reason for doing this is for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is the beauty of the gospel that we celebrate every Christmas. That God has comforted us by having compassion upon us in our affliction. See, that's what sin does to us. It afflicts us. It afflicts us with Suffering, pain, difficulties, the consequences of our sins, all of those things, we realize that we live in a fallen world. And unless Christ redeems us by grace through faith, we are helpless, dead in our sins, and without hope. And so the gospel call today is for all who hear to fall on the mercy of Jesus and put your faith in him, trusting him alone for forgiveness. We sing and we celebrate the redeeming servant for he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The sign of the new covenant that's given to us is now spread before us in the table of the Lord today. It's before us to seal by faith all the benefits of our redemption. We are called to continually come to this table because we need it. The Lord saw fit that we needed to come to this to receive from it all of its benefits. It reminds and it strengthens. It convicts and it assures. It helps us and it motivates us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Often we feel somber coming to the table because it reminds us of our sin and our need for atonement. But there is also great joy in coming to this table Because of what Jesus declared on the cross, that it is finished. There's nothing left for us to do and nothing that we can add. The work of the redeeming servant is all sufficient. And in that we can celebrate and have great joy and comfort. The table points forward 
for us to look ahead. It is the appetizer before the great feast that will come, the foretaste of the great supper of the Lamb when Christ returns in his second advent. So today, may we sing and join in the song of the servant, saying in our hearts as we come to his table, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise, and we do come with gladness that you have had compassion upon us, that you have comforted us in our affliction. We don't feel that all the time, Lord, if we're honest and confess that to you. There are days where we struggle with this. Lord, where is your comfort? Show us your compassion. But thank you for your word that reminds us that you are a compassionate God who will comfort us. And as we wait for that at times, Lord, would you give us great endurance and patience, trusting you to bring the comfort that we long for. Lord, we know that it will only be in the end that we receive what is the true and ultimate comfort, relief from not only our own sinfulness, but living in a sin-wrecked world. We long for the day when creation will be made anew. You will come and bring redemption to its fulfillment. We will be with you forever and ever, and sin will be no more, and neither will its consequences. Lord, we long for that day. Until it comes, would you give our hearts gladness that our Savior has come and accomplished the work, and it is in him alone that we need to rest. It is in him alone that we need to find peace, and it's in him alone that we need to be comforted. So bring your comfort to your people today and fill our hearts with joy that we might sing with the heavens and the earth and the mountains and all of creation, that our Redeemer has come. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.